This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. Okay, so we're going to start in Exodus 17. For the sake of context, uh, when we're under attack, Exodus 14 showed us that we stand still, we pray, we watch, and God parts the Red Sea. When we are in different seasons of our life, we seek the Lord, which was Exodus 15. And there were seasons of singing songs, seasons of bitterness, seasons of rest at Elam. And after they left Elam in Exodus 16, they struggled with sin. And that's part of the walk of a believer is that there is this struggle. Um, and they, that struggle starts with complaining. And God, in response to complaining, uh, shows them that the, the daily bread from heaven is, is what they need. Um, so they get manna and they are um, told to go to work every morning and, and collect their manna and that they'll have the food that they need. Part of the manna was, part of that idea of work was also the idea of rest. So God gives them Sabbath at the end of chapter 17. Uh, and he says to keep his commandments and his laws, that you have this choice to, uh, to, to live with the Lord or to live against the Lord. So God is trying to train the people of Israel. Part of the realization at the end of chapter 16 is that this is also sweet. When they taste the manna after doing all that work, they realize it actually tastes like honey that there's something kind of beautiful and gracious, gracious about, uh, about manna and that there's a simple miracle in that daily walk with God uh, that's amazing. So even after the manna from heaven gets to be kind of um, nothing new or old hat, there's still a miracle in it and there's still a blessing in it. And in the same way, daily bread with God gives us a blessing and it's a, it's a graceful way in which God feeds our life. Um, so you start to look at Exodus as this story of the life of believers and that they have these different seasons, they have things they have to work on, we wrestle with sin, we go to we go to war with the enemy and it's a spiritual war and there's a story to be told. So one question when you read Exodus is, are you writing your own Exodus story? Are you still stuck in Egypt or are you having these experiences that God is leading the people of Israel through? So God delivers them, he leads them, he rescues them, he turns the bitter to sweet, and he provides for them in chapter 16. And now we're in chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped in Rephidim, uh, which means rests or, or, or plural kind of resting places. Uh, so they camped in these places, these places of rest. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you've brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock and our thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Um, so once again, the people are complaining. The journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai is fulfilling a promise in Exodus 3.12, when God says, when thou, 
when thou hast, that's King James, when you have brought the, forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And the mountain he's talking about is Sinai. So they're making this journey kind of from Elam to Sinai. Um, and that would be an exhausting journey. Um, so they set out and did that according to the commandment to the Lord. And I think this is an interesting idea. They are doing what God told them to do. And that's an important thing to not lose sight of here. They're actually exactly in God's will, and they're thirsty with no water, and they're going through a tough time. It's possible then for the life of a believer, and part of your story could include a season where you're doing exactly what God told you to do, but you're still thirsty. You're still feeling like, man, God, are you there? Are you with me? Um, And God wants to see, I think, sometimes, are we still faithful even in those times? I think it's interesting that they include their livestock in this passage. So if there's livestock, that means that in the last chapter when they complained about hunger, they were literally hungry with livestock sitting right next to them. But they didn't want to eat their livestock. I mean, I get that. But this is a much more serious thing when you're thirsty because you can go a lot less time without fluids than you can without food. Um, So the concerns are great. The way they deal with their concerns is a little bit off kilter. Um, but caring for your livestock, I just think, is a nice touch because it's something that shepherds would say. It's frankly something that a good pastor would say. Lord, I'm thirsty, but when I'm thirsty, so are my people. And I need your spirit to get through this time. So they contend with Moses. They ask Moses for water and they don't ask for God. It's like turning to spiritual leaders instead of turning to the word of God. Um, if we don't go straight to God for things, we may still struggle with stuff. It's like reading books about the Bible instead of reading the Bible, like reading devotionals instead of having devotion. Thirst is legitimate, but how we handle our thirst is very important. Um, We can't consecrate things without God. We can't get the things we need in life or have those moments without the Holy Spirit. So in the last chapter where they had no food, they had their herds. In this chapter, they have no water. And that's super serious. But the decision's the same. No matter what the level of concern is or trial, we should be turning to the Lord. So in verse 2, the people contended, uh, which means to strive, to fight, to grasp. Uh, It's more than just complaining. They're actually in it with Moses at this point. In verse 3, They're complaining, which is loon, which is the same word we saw in chapter 16. It's to accuse someone, to uh, attack them verbally, so to speak. And they're doing the same thing they did in in chapter 16. In chapter 16, they were rewarded with manna. So at this point, you know, maybe the complaining is what works. Um, But they're going through this trial. It's a preparation for eternity. It occurred to me that whenever we go through trials... The world promises us something that can help us escape from that trial, but it never really helps us get out of bondage to that trial, right? The world never really delivers. You can go out and see a movie and forget about it for a while, but when you get out of the movie, your life is the same as when you went in, right? And in the end, you just spend your time on meaningless things that put you in slavery to whatever your struggles are, right? So the world promises a lot and delivers a little. God's the exact opposite. He promises trials and tests and and salvation with those things. 
he promises very little, like, you follow me and you're going to pick up a cross. Your journey will be one of struggle. But he delivers consistently. When we give up our life, when we lose our life, we gain it, right? And those that seek to gain their life just lose it. It's a interesting paradox, but slavery is when we try to adopt the things of the world. Freedom is when we adopt the things of God. And it just works that way. It's one of those deep truths of the universe. So as they're murmuring and contending and trying to acquire things for themselves, they're actually still kind of in slavery in a way. And Moses' response is, why do you contend with me? Or why do you chide me would be another way to say that. And I like chide. Why do you tempt the Lord? So very similar to the last chapter, they're blaming their leader, their pastor. Uh, they're They're blaming the person in charge when what they should be doing is going to the Lord. So they're forming a habit here of complaining and blaming, and it's getting exaggerated. It's growing. Um... And then, and then they tempt the Lord. And an interesting rabbit trail on tempting the Lord is this idea of temptation and the difference between temptation and sin. Can the Lord God Almighty be tempted? And according to Moses and other places in the Bible, apparently the God of the universe can be tempted. There can A situation can arise that will cause one to consider a course of action that might not be okay. That's not sin. And sometimes I think Christians shame and beat themselves up because they're tempted. But being tempted is not sin. It's about it's what you do with the temptation that makes you either righteous or sinful. Even Jesus in the wilderness was tempted, and he was tempted three times, right? So to be tempted is not to be sinning. But we can honestly encounter situations that make us want to react in a certain way. And the fact that we struggle with ourselves... That's how we know that we have a Holy Spirit in us and a conscience uh, that's wrestling with doing those things. They're almost ready to stone me, Moses says. I think this is a a heartbreak or a, a, a sentiment of heartbreak coming from Moses. How much would it hurt to love and care for people and frankly to leave his sheepfold? Moses was a happy sheep herder. So he was hanging out with all his sheep, enjoying life before all this stuff started. He didn't ask for all this. But here he is in the middle of it, sacrificing, you know, that good life with Zipporah in the in the wilderness, and uh, he was at peace for 40 years, and now he's doing this, and now he's going to get stoned, and he's probably thinking to himself, really, is this the end of everything for me? But Moses sees the truth of the matter, and that is that the complaining turns to contending, turns to a willingness to kill people, and a willingness to destroy people, which is just evil. So another nature of sin issue is sin tends to grow. It grows from simple complaints to grappling and wrestling to this desire to kill. And I think Moses is seeing a kind of truth there, and there's a heartbreak that comes with it. And here's how God responds. Listen to this. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. So Moses says, they're going to stone me. And God says, why don't you go stand in the right spot? And I just, <laughs> I love that because it's Moses, is, he basically tells Moses, why don't you go put a big target on your chest and stand in the right spot for it? 
But he also says a couple other things. He says, take in your hand the rod with which you struck the river. Take that thing that's familiar. You know I've worked with you when you held that rod. So take the rod with you. And for Moses, he knows that rod is, is, has been used before by God uh, and can be used again. So he helps Moses with his face by, by giving him something familiar. And I think that's wonderful. And I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. Go stand in the right spot to get stoned, Modus, but I'm going to stand in front of you. I just want you to be there and be ready to take the rocks, but I'm going to be there in the middle. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The elders piece, the elders of Israel, the elders piece is that there's going to be witnesses here. We don't want any confusion that Moses isn't the one to complain to. Remember, that's what started this. God will do things. Moses is just his agent. So Moses, you just stand there with your rod in your hand, hit this rock, and I'm going to do things. And people can see with the elders there that it's not just you doing it. It's me doing it. So the rock in this case is a literal rock. We don't know the size of the rock. Uh, it, this implies it's a large rock. Um, and if you're going to feed or water 2 million people plus their herds, uh, you need a lot of water. Um, later and throughout the word of God, rock is an interesting concept. Rock becomes a symbol of God himself, a foundational rock, a cornerstone rock. So this rock, this symbol of God throughout the rest of the Bible needs to get hit. That rock needs to be struck. And think about what it's getting struck with. It's getting struck with a rod, which throughout the rest of the Bible is going to be a symbol of authority, kingship, justice, and the law. So the law is going to strike God and living water is going to flow out of it. That's a miracle. Spiritually, that's a miracle. Here, literally, it's a miracle. Water does not come from rocks all the time. Even though uh, people that have been in Israel and walked through some of these wadis realize that sometimes these stones actually expire moisture. And if you hit them good, more water will come out. Um, Not the kind of water that feeds 2 million people, um, but there is groundwater in this part of the world. Uh, There are springs, an enormous number of springs that move under the ground because that's the way water can move more efficiently in this area. The ground and sandstone can be eroded away easily. And uh, if you're above ground, the water just evaporates. So I want to come back to this idea of rock. Um, It's not me connecting this to the New Testament, right? The New Testament makes this connection for us. Um, All I'm doing is sharing what the Bible says. Look at, and if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verse, um, well, I'm going to start at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all of them passed through the sea, right? So Paul's basically saying the entire nation of Israel followed God and they went through the sea. God delivered and saved and guided all of them. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all of them ate the same spiritual food. We're talking about chapter 16, the manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Now we're talking about what we just read. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Paul connects this rock directly with Jesus Christ. 
But most of them, but with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They were killed. A lot of these people are going to die in the wilderness because God wasn't pleased with them. Why is God not pleased with them? Later on, we're going to read, it's because they didn't believe that God would take care of them to conquer the Holy Land, right? And then verse 6 in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. We should learn from this. Are they lusting for evil things when they want a drink of water? No. The lusting for evil things is going to come in a few chapters. They're all baptized. They're all eating the manna. They're all drinking the water. That's where we're at right now. But later on, they're going to continue to pine after things of the world. They're going to continue to look behind them instead of looking in front of them. So just as the rock had to be struck, so did the Messiah need to be struck before the living water would flow out, Isaiah 53, 4. Jesus struck with a rod of Moses, the curse of the law, and it poured out abundantly. Jesus is going to get struck by those that proclaim the law, both the Roman law and the Jewish law, and he's going to be killed on a cross for us. And it's out of that act that we have the Holy Spirit descended upon all of God's people. Here's other places where God is our rock. Genesis 49, by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Deuteronomy 32, for their rock is not like our rock. 2 Samuel 23, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust. Matthew 16, 16, Peter says to Christ, you're Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him in verse 18 of Matthew 16. And I say to you that you are Peter, which is Petros, a little rock. And on this rock, Petra, which means big rock, I will build my church. This rock is often associated with Peter. But when you see that Jesus is using two very different Greek words there, he's trying to say, Peter, you're a little rock. But the idea that you believe that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, that's the rock, the big rock, I'm going to build my church on. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Get this idea. Moses, God is guiding Moses to give us an image of a walk with Christ thousands of years before it happens. This is the kind of God that's proving he's beyond time and space right? He's showing it to us perfectly. This is the stone that will be cut without hands, Daniel 2, will shatter the great nations of the world and will establish a kingdom that will not end. If Christ is the stone, has he shattered nations? Yeah, because we don't have Romans anymore. We have Italians. We don't have Vikings. We have Swedes. We don't have Gauls. We have Frenchmen, right? We don't have the Anglos. We have the English, right? God has taken entire nations and transformed them from conquering nations to nations of peace and art and science and education. But here's the thing, the stone that's tested, the foundational stone, the stumbling stone, Isaiah 8:14 says, that stone will be as a sanctuary. But a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The same Jesus that brings life and water becomes a stumbling block for other people. You want to test this? Just go out and talk to people and say, hey, 
I love Jesus. What do you think of Jesus? And watch to see what reaction you get from people. And you'll either get great rejoicing and joy because somebody just met a brother and sister in the faith, or you'll get people that really get upset with you for even bringing up the name of Jesus. You can be a believer, but boy, don't talk about Jesus with other people. That gets people upset. That's a stumbling block and even offensive to some people. Isaiah 8, 14. Back in Exodus, verse 7, so he called the name of the place Masa, temptation, and Meribah, strife, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord not among us? This is a really interesting passage, verse 7. Temptation and strife, Moses is clearly naming this place so they can remember, this is where you were tempted, this is where you struggled, this is where you doubted your God. And the doubting of God is this, and the way Moses remembers it is not the attack on him, but the attack on the Lord. And the question, is the Lord among us or not? Interestingly, in the Hebrew, is much simpler. It's just, is Emmanuel, right? Lord among us is Emmanuel, and it's in the form of a question. So they're asking, is there Emmanuel? And is the Lord among us? This is, a, this is a timeless question that they ask. And that's the temptation and the strife that they're going through, is that they're doubting if God is with us or not. So then the question, is God with us? Well, Matthew focused on this entirely. In his first chapter in verses 18 and 23, he uses that phrase, God is with us, right? It, and Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that directly means God is with us. So Matthew ends his gospel with that too. Remember, Jesus gives his assurance to the disciples. And if you want, just flip to chapter 28 at the end of Matthew. And his assurance was, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Emmanuel. I'm with you. That's my assurance to you. Believers, when you're thirsty, when you're complaining that God, maybe God isn't with you, you're denying the promise of Jesus Christ that he's with you. I'm with you till the end of the age. It's no coincidence that they get their living water from the rock that was struck, and the next thing that happens is the eternal enemies of God are coming at them. This is the, 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 the last battle with the Egyptians was entirely God doing the fighting. But notice in this battle, there's a new character that shows up and he's going to lead his soldiers in a battle against the enemy, kind of hand-to-hand combat battle against the enemy, right? And this is an interesting shift. It's like a new era for the, peop- for the congregation. Verse 8, now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. In all the places they're trying to rest, there's this Amalek tribe that's attacking them. And Moses said to Joshua, there's our new character, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with a rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and her, a new character, H-U-R, her, went up to the top of the hill. Oh, there's so much here. Okay. Remember Amalek is, they're longtime enemies of Israel. If you go back to Genesis 36, 12, Amalek was the son of Eliphaz, the grandson of Esau. And Esau and Jacob have the legendary conflict. Um, So the Amalekites are cousins of the, the tribe of Israel. And they're the first ones to fight them. The first fight that people are going to have when they go follow Moses and Joshua, the first fight they're going to have is with their own family. 
that are just waiting for him after they get out of Egypt. And this is a bold family because they don't care about the plagues in Egypt. They've heard about them, um, but they just keep attacking. They don't fear God at all. In fact, they think maybe that they're doing the will of God by attacking these crazy God people, right? But they attack like wolves. We don't see that in this text, but if you look at Deuteronomy 25, it says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you were coming out of Egypt? how he met you on the way and attacked your rear flanks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and you were weary and he did not fear God. Remember when you were thirsty, when you were struggling, who went after you in those moments? Was it Egypt? Was it the world? No, it was your own family. It was the people in your church saying horrible things like, well, you should never feel down. You should never feel depressed because God's with you. Or pithy things like, well, you know, people die and go to heaven. You shouldn't mourn for that long. You should get over it. Or why don't you just start your morning with some singing and do that? There's nothing more abrasive when people are thirsty and struggling than people who think they're doing the right thing and they attack when you're weak. It's like wolves going after a pack and going after the elderly and the children, right? It's cruel and it's mean. And the Amalekites attack in that kind of way, according to Deuteronomy. These Amalekites, they're going to stick around through the Bible. We'll see them come up again. In the book of Esther, Haman's trying to destroy all the Israelites, right? One of the attempts of genocide on the Israelites. We'll have more of those too. And he's an Amalekite. The Herods that try to kill all the, the babies uh, its to try to make it so Jesus doesn't show up on earth, the Herods are the last mention of Amicalites in the Bible. So they keep showing up. And some people even argue the Amicalites are representative of nations today that are at war with Israel, right? They're longtime enemies of Israel. Let's go to Joshua. This is our first mention of a major biblical character, Joshua. No fanfare. No biography, no how he was born story, just bam, there's Joshua in the middle of all of it, right? In Numbers 13, 8, uh, the original name is Hosea, uh, which means Savior, and now it's Joshua, Yeshua, which means Jehovah is our Savior. In the Greek, the way you translate Yeshua is Jesus. <laughs> so we literally have Jesus showing up and he's going to go find some men and go out and find and fight with Amalek, verse 9. Like Jesus said, I didn't come, right? I, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. Jesus said, I'm going to divide families. I'm going to divide people on this question, is God with us or not? And people are going to divide and struggle with that question. Jesus becomes a stumbling block. So Yeshua, Joshua, is going to go out and fight with these people that call themselves part of the family but are really just attacking the weak. Remember how Jesus treated the Pharisees, people who were in the family but attacked the weak? And he said, look, you go after all these people that are weak and you don't even take care of your own righteousness. On the outside, like you're a painted tomb, but on the inside, you're corrupt and evil. Right? Jesus comes to the defense of the weak. So, It always gets to me when people say, well, in the Old Testament, you just got God telling people to go to war with people all the time. Well, here he's telling people to go to war with them. But in Deuteronomy, we see this image of the kind of people he's going to war with. He's going to war with people who attack the weak. 
is there a time when people of God that have been fed by living water, that have been eating their daily bread, that have been doing all these things, disciplining themselves in the kingdom of God, is there a time where we fight for in people that are being oppressed? Yes. There's a time we go after that. There's a place for that in the kingdom that sometimes you protect the weak. You defend the defenseless. So Jesus steps in and does that. And here the name is, in the Hebrew, it's Yeshua. It's an identical situation to what we saw before. And we move forward with that. Verse 11. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hands down, Amalek prevailed. How do we fight with the world? And, and here we get just, just this clear image. Part of the essential nature of fighting with Jesus, Jehovah, Yeshua, Joshua, is we have to pray. And we don't do it alone. Right? We need other people to pray with us so that we can do it without ceasing. He's who fights our battles, right? When we let down that banner of prayer, the enemy, those wolves, they wait for those openings and they attack at night. They attack when they, when we let up. But when we never let up, we don't we don't give ground when we're in prayer. So how do we fight with Jesus fighting at the front for us? We pray. And we do it without ceasing. Here he literally holds his arms up. So this is interesting. He goes up on top of a hill and he find, and, and, and there's a rock that he's on too. And he holds his arms outright. Have we seen this image before? One of our heroes of the Bible on a hill with his arms stretched wide with a brother on either side of him and his arms being held up. We do. Jesus ended his life that way before he was resurrected. So Joshua defeats the Amalekites, Amaleks, defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of a sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book. The book is the one we're reading right now, right? God's saying this story is a new addition to that book we're working on, Moses. He also had all the toldoths of Genesis So this is a gathering collection of scrolls that's a written record of what happened. But look at this. God asked him to to save it in a second way, too. This is duplicating your your, uh, resources. And recounted in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So I want you to write it, and I want you to speak it orally. Most of the Jewish people, most of the Hebrews, the children of Israel, couldn't read and write at this point. They were slaves. So having an oral record going with your written record is part of what you need to do here. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord is sworn, and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We are never going to stop fighting with people that believe they are right. Right? We don't claim we're right. We claim God is right. The Lord is our banner. What does it mean to have a banner? It means a few things. One, it means whoever's holding up a banner is showing their alignment, right? So if for all generations, the Lord is my banner, by the way, that's a new name for God that we see in chapter 17. Have you noticed we get new names for God with each of these stories? This name is Jehovah Nishi, right? So it's a new name for God. It means a flag, a sail on a boat. It means something that gets lifted up that proclaims your alignment, 
So if the Lord is my banner, he's my alignment. He's the side I fight on in everything I do day to day. He's who leads every conversation. He's my God. Number two, it's a public confession of who's going to get the glory when the victory is won. We don't get the glory because Jehovah's fighting our battles for us, right? So we hold up a banner, but we don't get the glory for it. Whoever's on the banner gets the glory for it. The third thing a banner means, banner means hope. When people wave their banner, they actually believe that whoever's on that banner is going to win their fight. So a banner means alignment. It means confession of who gets the glory, and it means a hope in the future. It means all of those things. So remember when we put things in the book, we're going to do that. The, the passage there that says, I will utterly blot out, is actually a repeat of a word. In the Hebrew, it's macha, uh, and it just says it twice, macha, macha. So I will macha, macha. I will exterminate, exterminate. I'm going to rub out, rub out. I'm going to blot, blot is, is maybe a better translation. This phrase is repeated in when we hear this part of the story in Numbers, and it's repeated again in Deuteronomy. It's a key part of this story. The Lord is going to be done with these people that attack like wolves. But there's going to be a season where we fight alongside Joshua. But at the end of these generations and generations of time, God's going to end it. I take great hope in that. When you struggle with people that are self-righteous, they think they know what God wants, but they do evil things to advance it. These vipers, these brood of vipers, as they're called in the New Testament, if we're going to ban, we're going to argue with these people all the time. We're just going to have to hold up the Lord as our banner, and the Word of God is what God says. So we stand on the Word of God and we hold up the banner of Jesus. I like the idea that anytime you meet someone, you can put your banner up. And you can do it really deliberately. I mean, there's practical ways to do this, to not be offensive, right? You're not in people's face when they say, what are you going to do this weekend? And you say, I'm going to go to church this weekend. I love the worship and I love studying the word of God. It means so much to me and it really helps me. That's just speak, telling your own story and sharing that with people. <laughs> it's funny because you're also putting up a banner. You're saying who you align with. You're saying where you get your hope. And you're confessing who gets the victories when you have a great week. Right? When things go well for you, it's because you hold up a banner of Jesus. Right? What are you gonna do this weekend? I'm gonna serve God. What's what do you do on the what do you do for fun? You know, I it sounds geek like, but I read the word of God and I just love seeing the word of God show itself in perfection. I love seeing these connections between the old and new testament. I love the faith that it gives me. I love the mission of telling other people the great news of the gospel. I love watching God take sin out of my life. The more I lean on him, the more it happens. You know, I love intercessory prayer. I love holding up people in prayer. My favorite thing is to hold up people in prayer that aren't even believers so they can see how God will advance in their life when they're prayed for. Can I pray for you? Is there anything going on in your life? Oh, I know you're not a believer, but hey, what does it hurt if I pray for you? Let me pray for you so you can see what God does too. Evangelizing, it's not hard. It's an outpouring of what God does in our life that other people can see. Verse 16, for he said, because the Lord is sworn and the Lord will have a war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jesus has, he has said, it's past tense, Jesus will blot out, will have war, future tense. And then verse 16, the Lord will have war. And when we see it here in verse 16, it's a present ongoing tense. 
So once again, we see this idea of past, future, present. God works in all times. This idea of fighting with Amalek is an ongoing battle that's going to happen on earth until the end of days when God wipes the battle out. This is a picture of our flesh and our sin nature. Even though we're redeemed and saved, sin is destroyed past, present, future. We still have to struggle with it. We still have to raise a banner and advance by blows, right? With the sword, we have to advance with the word of God to fight sin in our own life. If you're fighting against sin in your life, it means you're saved, unsaved people, people that haven't committed their life to the Lord, they don't struggle with their sin. They just do it, right? Any struggle they have is a a shadow of a conscience that they might have had before in their life, but they don't struggle with it. They embrace it. If you struggle with your sin, praise the Lord. You're on the right path, but struggle with the sin. And how do we do it? We pray. How do we do it even better? We get her and Aaron to hold up our arms in prayer. Get people, get accountability, brothers and sisters, to pray with you for the very things in your life you need to do battle with. You want water? Ask for it. Jesus has already been struck. He'll give it to you. Ephesians 6:12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. That battle, that battle's going to wax and wane to the degree which you pray and hold up the rulership of Jesus Christ in your life. When you're on the verge of sin, here's the prayer. Lord, I'm being tempted. Help me. I can't. I've tried and I go back to that sin like a dog to its vomit. Lord, I need your Holy Spirit. I need Jesus to fight my battles for me. Take away the temptation, please, Lord. Watch what happens. The temptation actually gets beat by God before it happens. What will happen is a year later, you'll look back on the last year of your life. If you persistently pray against that sin, you'll look back on the last year of your life and you'll realize, wow, God's pretty much erased it. Maka maka, it's gone. I'm not even tempted by that stuff anymore. And then you can praise the Lord because he was your banner. He's the one you prayed for. He fought the battle. God is in our life and he will hold us up. And there's a way to do that. What an amazing image. Lord, thank you for this chapter. Because Lord, we are in a struggle and that battle is against powers and principalities. Lord, it's against our own flesh and blood. Our own struggle, Lord, is our sin. On top of that, we got wolves attacking us from the outside. When we're weak, the wolves attack viciously. Lord, bring Joshua, bring Jehovah, bring Yeshua Jesus into our life so that we can fight these battles and he can win them. Teach us to pray in all times without ceasing to lift you up as God Almighty in our life and change us. Lord, we don't want to be slaves forever. We don't want to look back to Egypt. Lord, we need to be fed and you give us our daily bread. We need to drink and you give us water from the rock. Thank you. Teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.